Applications are now open for the 18th annual Tin House Summer Workshop, which takes place July 11th to the 19th on the campus of Reed College in Portland, Oregon. The program combines workshops, seminars, career panels, agent meetings, and readings. This year's faculty includes Hanif Abdurraqib, Catherine Lacey, Alyssa Washuda, and Saeed Jones, and many more. In addition to scholarships, payment plans are available for both the application fee and tuition. More information can be found at tinhouse.com workshops. Today's episode of Tin House Live is a talk the poet Jericho Brown gave at the Tin House Summer Writers Workshop in 2016 about suicide and about joy and about both in relationship to poetry. The audio file has some minor issues. Most notably, you might hear some extraneous microphone sounds if you listen on your headphones, but which you won't notice if you listen on your computer or with speakers. We couldn't pass on sharing this talk by one of our most important poets writing in English today, someone hopefully we will one day have on the podcast for a conversation. Before we begin, I want to mention his latest book, The Tradition, from Copper Canyon Press, a finalist for the 2019 National Book Award in Poetry, because I suspect if you begin this episode not knowing Jericho Brown's work, that by the end, you'll be wanting to seek it out. Now, for Jericho Brown on suicide and on joy. Hi. Hello. Y'all are sweet. Hi. I'm going to read two essays uh, for my lecture. The first uh, is an essay about suicide. Uh, and because I don't want anyone to be under any strange impression that suicide is the best idea, I'm going to read after that a essay about joy. All right? To be asked for a kiss. Suicide's note. The calm, cool face of the river asked me for a kiss. The desire to be dead and the desire not to be alive and the desire to kill oneself are three different desires. The desire to die is not the desire to be dead. Anyone who has ever been in love knows this. And though all of these desires seem to those who have never had them synonymous with the desire to run away, they are not the desire to run away. Any look at the recent statistics on gay teen suicide is proof of this. I am because I've been assigned to think in this way about this poem, trying to remember the last time I wanted to kill myself. I don't have to remember the last time I wanted to die because that would be as simple as remembering the last time I had sex without a condom. When people ask me to examine a poem I love, they mean for me to dismantle the poem to undress the one I love before them down to his line breaks, his rhythms, his slick and sustained use of metaphor. 
They want to know why I love and how they should. They want love coming out of my mouth to be more mathematical than it is in their own lives. Suicide's note is one sentence long. Counting its title, the poem is 14 words, 17 syllables, a single tercet. Here, an audience would like for me to say a thing or two about haiku and its relationship to the blues stanza, but I'll get to that later, maybe. Langston Hughes published Suicide's Note in his first book, The Weary Blues, in 1926, which means he was less than 24 years old when he wrote it. I don't know whether or not Hughes ever considered suicide, and of course, I don't think that matters. Or do I? I think it matters that Langston Hughes was careful not to do anything that would make us think that he thought a single thought that could be perceived as negative. And so a star is born. And so black folk know the name of at least one black poet. But none of that is my assignment. I am to examine a poem I love. And examine means that you want at least to know what I think of the title. Suicide is both a verb and a noun. The title of the poem and the lack of an article before the word suicide allows us to begin to think of the act as a being, a personage capable of writing something as thoughtful as a note. If I had committed suicide when I was 12, or 14, or 16, or 18, or 20, or 22, I would not have left a note. Now I remember, I was 22. Look at what writing can do. It can help me remember and to smile at Sexton's unnameable lust returning to me every other year for 10 years. Where was I? The note. The joy I had in thinking of how best to get rid of myself was always tied to inventing ways for it to seem an accident. What time is the bus that's on time when I'm late and rushing across the street? Do I know anyone on the roof of a building I can help? How many pain pills is an accident? I would not have left a note because the suicide is, believe it or not, the most competitive person in the world. I once understood death as a competition. I had to do it before anyone or anything else did it to me. I was interested in winning, and I was convinced that someone would interpret a note left behind as a letter of surrender. The first line of the poem is end stopped, marking the beginning of the speaker's end. The break after the calm, such a truncated phrase, calls again to our understanding of a single word with two functions. If the title of the poem shows us some embodiment of the act of suicide, then the first line defines its outcome 
as calm. Whenever I read a poem, I read for what it doesn't say. In the church where I was raised, one of the things for which so many people publicly prayed every Sunday is peace. The calm of the suicide, like his note, is the dream of the speaker, the self he is after, the self that is not there. Alliteration starts the second line and we begin to understand calm more fully as an adjective and not only a noun. Here comes the blues I was supposed to play earlier. While the poem is not a blues poem in its form exactly, the second line fully positions it as a blues poem in its content. As in haiku, the blues stanza juxtaposes two seemingly different images or ideas or emotions in order to show the interrelatedness of the two. In his 1926 essay, The Negro Artist and the Racial Mountain, Hughes calls the blues incongruous humor that so often becomes ironic laughter mixed with tears. What is a cool face? If it is a face that expresses disapproval or the aloof nature of its owner, don't we wonder why she is so mean and how we can please her? If it is a face in full confidence of its beauty or with features that attract us, don't we want that face to look our way? The alliteration of calm and cool in this poem tie me to its pull down toward its final piece of punctuation. And the river means to make that movement downward toward the end all the more gentle. Water quenches thirst. Water flows free. Langston Hughes wrote what is probably his most famous poem, The Negro Speaks of Rivers, when he was 18 years old. He wrote about rivers until the end of his life. In some of the poems, they are sites for murder. In others, they are sites for suicide. In Hughes's poems where rivers are sites for suicide, the speaker is the victim of unrequited love. Yes, we could drown in a river, but we could also drown in someone's loving arms. Now, doesn't that sound like the blues? The act of suicide as a personage is, in this poem, one with the river. It flows in one direction. I don't know why I stopped wanting to kill myself. I didn't have a therapist I didn't take medication. I imagine I am the last of those raised by binary believers. To us, it was told that white people had few troubles and they couldn't deal with any of them without another bill to pay for antidepressants or for someone to listen. I am old enough to be of a generation of black people who didn't think black people kill themselves. Adults would say as much. When my lover cries about a black boy as far away from us as Johnson and Wales University in Providence, Rhode Island, hanging himself in his dorm room, my lover cries because nothing we heard adults say while we were young seems true. 43% of black gay teens have contemplated or attempted suicide. 
my lover has never been to Rhode Island. Alliteration moves to consonants and then back again to alliteration in the final line of the poem. Only now the, si the sound we've encountered by way of the letter C comes to us through the more definite letter K. Africa. Africa. Clan. Clan. K is the first letter in the word kindness. Suicide. The calm, cool face of the river was kind enough to have asked the speaker. And for what? Whenever I read a poem, I read for what it doesn't say. The speaker, and this has a great deal to do with why I love this poem so much. The speaker is dead. He talks to me, to us, from the grave. Even from the grave, he admits that all he ever wanted was to be asked for a kiss. Suicide's Note is not a poem about suicide. On the contrary, it is a poem about living forever, about finally getting what we want and getting it even after death. The poem is interested in the immortality of poetry. The speaker doesn't want to die as much as he wants to oblige. Who doesn't want a kiss? Who doesn't want a cool face to ask for that kiss? I don't remember why I stopped wanting to kill myself, but I do know how I stay alive. Though I love to kiss my lover, it is not because of his kisses. Though I am laid open when he cries, it is not because of his tears. I live to write poems. And I write poems because it's all I can do to stave off death. Or, as Sexton said before killing herself, suicide is, after all, the opposite of the poem. After all. Only poems allow me the opportunity, even when I get them wrong, to try at communicating with the dead and hopefully with those who have yet to live. By the time I turned 22, I don't know that I wanted to stay alive, but I did, and I still do, want to write a poem. So that's the first essay. Thank you. And And this next one is um, is probably just as short, if not shorter. The long distance between poems. In the church where I was raised, adults made a sharp distinction between joy and happiness. Happiness felt good, but it was temporary. And because it was temporary, there was something about it not to be trusted. Happiness, therefore, had a relationship with easy money, so often lost as soon as it was pocketed, or with the applause that comes at the end of a song, or with the entanglements of sex and orgasm. Joy, on the other hand, was a deeper and long-lasting feeling. Other than God, joy had no traceable root because it made no logical sense. 
Supposedly, you could lose your entire family in a house fire and still have joy. You could wonder if the next meal would ever materialize, but still feel joy. And quite conversely, you could win the lottery, understanding that the money was only money. It might change your life, giving you more in this realm for which to be grateful, but it had nothing to do with your sense of joy. Joy, as it was explained to me, is a spiritual thing. This joy I have, the world didn't give it to me. This joy I have, the world didn't give it to me. This joy I have, the world didn't give it to me. The world didn't give it, the world can't take it away. It seemed quite convenient that the people of that church had this particular conception of joy. We were black, southern, and working class, or out of work. A vast majority of us were descendants of slaves who, in one of their several improvisational tactics for survival, had decided that the riches awaiting them in heaven made the attainment of comfort on earth seem silly. I'm not sure how my ancestors did anything they did without killing themselves, but I can't deny their connection to some supernatural force that propelled them forward, a force that often led to them thinking about me and my ability to thrive long before I was born. Still, though, one of the 763 reasons I stopped going to that church is that there was always shame involved with sadness. I really do hate the idea that black joy itself is a joy derived in spite of. While it may indeed include that, limiting it to such assumes that joy among black people only exists as a defiant response to oppression from white people. I'd rather believe that black folk are capable of this deep supernatural sense without having to be enslaved or disenfranchised. Whether or not Setha, in Toni Morrison's Beloved, had been a slave, she still would have a few yellow flowers on the table, some myrtle tied around the handle of the flat iron holding the door open for a breeze. In literature, black people don't need white people to enjoy the scent of the earth. In life, Black people don't need the government-sanctioned murder of another unarmed person killed by police in order for us to gather and sing in the streets. In my poems, I don't need the face of another mother crying on the news in order for me to have subject matter or content. I know that how we handle an adverse situation is the key to overcoming the adversity. At the same time, though, I know that we cannot truly understand and make use of an emotion if we do not allow ourselves to fully feel and find an outlet for that emotion. To this day, I worry about how much of the rage I sublimated in my childhood still lingers. Is there time I spent trying to access joy when I should have been wailing or at least punching a pillow? 
I probably turned to poetry because it allowed for a complexity of ideas and feeling that I thought religion asked me to avoid. In Tradition and the Individual Talent, Eliot says, the more perfect the artist, the more completely separate in him will be the man who suffers and the mind which creates. The more perfectly will the mind digest and transmute the passions which are its material. This is what we mean when we talk about loving the writing process. It is offensive to say and impossible to explain. But somehow, in the act of writing, the tree, the shoestring, the molestation, the mother, the beating, the burial, and the music all become the same. Each item of one's life, from experience or from imagination, merges until anything becomes material we can use to make the gorgeous and enduring thing. The only joy I have had in writing about domestic violence is the opportunity to re-envision and reform memories that otherwise leave me inoperable and in tears. Writing the poem is how we face the terror while working to separate ourselves from that same terror. I love writing because it is the moment at which I am at once both completely present paying close attention to my own thinking, and completely absent, as the language for that thinking flows through me. I don't think about competition or rejection while I'm writing because I can't remember that I'm in the present tense or that there is a future. If I think about any other poet at all, it is because I'm trying to make use of a strategy I've learned from his or her poems, that strategy being yet another part of my reading experience I get to use as material. The hardest part isn't writing the poem. We have no choice but to experience joy in that moment. The difficulty of the poet's life is how to look forward to the next poem, how to know that another one is indeed on the way. I have written before about how purposeless and useless I feel as a human being when I find myself in the middle of a long distance between poems. How then do I go on the journey toward new work without living life mired in self-pity? Here is my trick. When I'm talking to my students or my friends about the poems that are their greatest successes, I ask them what it felt like while they were writing the poem. It is impossible for us to be consumed by the so-called competitive nature of our art when we are finding ways to be happy for our comrades. This is a spiritual practice. Hearing someone explain how they came to a line, how they thought to make a leap, requires humility and intimacy. I believe the conversation about writing leads to writing, leads to joy. When I invite another to articulate her writing process, I invite her to relive that joy. 
Doing so allows me the chance to know and make myself open to new alternatives for making the mystery happen. I can move toward the next poem with a sense of knowing because I have something entirely new to be surprised by. How will what Ellen said when we last talked about her work manifest itself in my work? How will Mark's excitement about rhyming lording with morbid change what I make of rhyme when I am again at the writing table? If joy is deeper than happiness, if it lasts longer, it does so because it knows that, good or bad, underneath that which is now is something more expansive, something constant. If we do not feel it in the present moment, then someone else must. Our job is to gain access to that encouragement by encouraging, to change our proximity to that someone else. Our greatest strength is indeed our sense of community. Can we keep our communities, our conversations safe through finding one another, don't we end up back at ourselves, back at our work? And isn't that the work of singing and of praising? This joy I have, the world didn't give it to me. This joy I have, the world didn't give it to me. This joy I have, the world didn't give it to me. The world didn't give it. The world can't take it away. Thank you.